Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 331 of the podcast. It is February 5th, 2019. My guest today is Dr. Eric Dixon. He's a professor of emergency medicine at UMass Medical School, and he's also the chief executive officer of the UMass Memorial Healthcare System. You might have heard Dr. Dixon speak in episode 231 of the podcast, which was actually audio that was from the CEO panel at the 2015 Lean Healthcare Transformation Summit. And by the way, I hope you can join me at this year's summit in Washington, D.C. this June. There's a link to that, um, the, the previous episode and more, if you go to leanblog.org slash 331. So in episode 231, uh, it's coincidental that it's exactly 100 episodes ago. Uh, Dr. Dixon talked about the beginning of what has been quite an impressive turnaround at UMass Memorial Healthcare. And so he, he'll touch on that a little bit at the beginning of this episode. But I invited him to come formally be a guest so he could talk about their progress over the last couple of years. You know, what it means in particular for him to be creating a culture of what they call everyday innovators, everywhere, every day, which engages people in improvement. It's led to over 65,000 ideas being implemented over five years. That's a, a topic that he writes about a, a lot. In fact, the blog is called uh, Everyday Innovators. You can find that at everydayinnovators.org. So in our conversation, we'll discuss, you know, we'll go back to some of his starting points even before uh, he was at UMass, how he uh, found lean almost out of desperation, as he puts it. How can we shift as leaders from knowing the answer to continuous experiments? You know, how can we encourage employees and managers to think that way too? Why is it important that he, a CEO, not be throwing solutions out when working with people? And I asked, does it help that he works a few shifts a month as an emergency medicine doc? So we'll talk about that and a lot more. But to find uh, the link to the episode, if, if you'd like to subscribe, you can go to leanblog.org slash 331. Eric, hi. Thank you so much for taking time uh, out, of, out of your schedule to join us on the podcast. How are you? I'm doing great, Mark, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, you've got, you know, the, the, there's so many aspects of, of your story uh, to tell. Um, I, I guess let's just jump in and ask you know, if you can uh, talk about your first exposure to lean as, as an emergency medicine physician and sort of when and where and how that even happened. I got my first exposure to lean was in 2003. I had just left uh, University of Massachusetts Medical School where I um, went to med school and residency and was working uh, primarily in the basic science lab and doing research and then practicing emergency medicine. And I got an opportunity very early in my career to become an academic department chair. And uh, that required that I went to the University of Iowa, um, which is an absolutely wonderful place. And so six years after graduating residency, I found myself in a job that most people do 10 and 30 years into their um, a career and uh, I, I found Lane almost out of desperation because I had really probably taken on too much uh, too early in my career. Instead of just running a research lab, I had to run a 24-7 operation that was a very, very busy emergency department uh, in a, a 
high acuity trauma center, had to get a, um, a residency up and running and, and try to lead that up at, at the same time was trying to keep my, my science going. And I needed help and, and went and asked the CEO of the uh, healthcare system there for help. And uh, she got me a coach and, and that coach, uh, the guy by the name of Sabi Singh was um, very proficient in and lean and um, and, and really won me over in terms of the methodology and how I could use it to fix a lot of the problems that we were having there. Yeah, so I mean, what, what was appealing um, about lean as, as a way of fixing those problems? I mean, we're, we're, you know, there, there might have been other strategies or other approaches that people suggested or that you had looked into. What, what was appealing about lean? I, I was naive at the a time in terms of what management was right that somehow that you were going to build up this expertise in managing an emergency department over a few years and you would have the answer to all the questions that would come before you and, and th that was my idea of management right they picked me to be chair because i had some knowledge and then you very quickly find out you didn't have the knowledge that you needed to be able to to run something you were put in charge of and what really appealed to me about lean is what, what Sabi had described to me is this method of continuous experimentation towards a predefined goal. And I knew that because I was about 75% of my, my time as an academic physician was in research. And this concept that we would stay, try to stabilize a process and then do an experiment to see if the new process, the process change, and would improve results came very naturally to me. That's what I did all day in, in the research lab. And I think the, the most important thing that, that Sabi taught me is that the experiment you do, you want the people doing the work to pick that experiment. That's the way he described it to me. Because if, if the leader is picking the experiment, there's not going to be any buy-in from the people that are going to have to execute the experiment. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the leader often won't pick the best experiment. And uh, so, when I, you know, through, through a series of continuous experimentation and asking people and learning to be better at leading by asking questions and asking people what do they want to try next, and we saw market improvements in terms of the performance of the emergency department and really getting people through the emergency department. And, it, it, you know, it, it stuck with me here we are, you know, 15, 16 years later, and that that concept of the people doing the work mm -hmm. know what experiment to do next, what to try next, as long as you put it into a structure for them such that they are, have, are empowered to try something different. And, and we'll know whether or not there's an improvement because a lot of people do experiments, so a lot of people try things. And and they haven't structured it in a way to know whether or not things are better or not, and and that's really what I what I what I got out of those first early years in in lean, and it uh, it went extremely well. And I, by the time I left there five years after arriving, um, they had made me chief operating officer of the hospital because this this they thought that as a physician executive I could help really Sabi and others spread that across to other other departments and uh, my understanding is he's gone on and continues to do great things um, there. 
Yeah. So what were um, some of the results, I mean, within the emergency department? You, you alluded to it sounded like patient flow, getting people through the department. I mean, what were, um, to, to your recollection, some of the measurable results to know things were getting better from those experiments and improvements? In, in emergency medicine, there is, you know, time-sensitive illnesses, stroke, myocardial infarction, trauma, um, and, and, you know, bad, severe infections, that the, the time from the person arriving in the emergency department, especially if they come in the front door instead of with an ambulance, to the time that the physician sees them and, and makes the diagnosis is critical. We call that door-to-doc time. And mm-hmm. what, what we had there was a very long door-to-doc time. And, and people would deteriorate from that from that weight because they had a time sensitive illness and so um, you know the the biggest thing that we saw improve there was a shortening of door to doc time and an improvement of outcomes in patients with um, you know acute severe life threatening time sensitive illnesses and you know the 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 we went from an average wait of about two and a half hours to be seen um, for a walk-in patient in the emergency department um, to going weeks without a patient ever having to be put in the waiting room. And wow. we, we talked about designing the emergency department to get rid of the waiting room at wow. one point mm-hmm. as we moved to a new ED. It, did that end up happening uh, as, as a... I remember once then we went three weeks without anybody having to be put in the waiting room. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, there's family members and there's sometimes you get so overwhelmed in a trauma center that patients do have to wait. So when we, when we built the emergency department, we did, did build it with uh, what would be a much smaller emergency department waiting room than uh, typical places that have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, that's a great example where flow and, quality go hand in hand. And, and I think it's great that you had exposure early on to the idea of engaging the people who do the work in experiments where sometimes people, uh, you know, whether it's doctors or engineers like myself, you, you continually, you, you continue the expert trap of, so, well, I've learned lean and now I'm, I'm going to tell people what to do. I'm going to tell people what the lean answer is. And, um, you know, some of us, you know, that eventually get coaches who steer us in the direction of, of not being the expert and um, engaging others. And, you know, I think there, there's also a, a great lesson that you had there early on about flow. You know, sometimes people talk about the idea of efficiency and they're really thinking more about well, keeping people or resources like x-ray machines fully utilized. But that, that's, that's, that's quite different than um, focusing on on flow. Um, so I'm, I'm curious if you have uh, just other reflections as a leader. Did, did you face pressure or how, how did you strike the balance between, you know, pressures to, to increase utilization versus ensuring smooth flow? Yeah, I think in, in emergency medicine, especially um, improvement of flow is an improvement of the quality of care because we deal with time sensitive illnesses, but it's also really an important way to increase the productivity of the people that are that are doing the work. And a lot as you take that waste out, we saw physician productivity go up significantly as we tried to keep the physicians doing physician oriented work and make things um, flow smoothly uh, around them. One of the big 
revelations during all of this for me. And, and, you know, as you go through your career, there's these things that just stick was this sense that when you listen to the people doing the work and you let them pick their experiments, there's automatic buy-in. Um, whereas if I say, I want you to do this, your job this way, starting tomorrow, <laughs> right? there's an automatic rejection. So a triage nurse, this is a nurse that sees the patients as they walk in the door, asked, could, could you put three chairs right in front of me for each of the next patients that I have to see so the patients don't have to walk way out to the waiting room and I don't have to find them and call their name? And if they start getting sicker, I can pull them out of order. Uh, it's, it's for the, the doctor running the emergency department that has never done triage. You're not coming up with that mm. idea. Right. More importantly, if I did come up with that idea and I told the triage nurse, this is the way I want you to do your job moving forward, how much buy-in is there? And, uh, you know, really very little. They'll find a way to make it not work sometimes, I believe, uh, if, even if it's a good I idea. And so you get this immediate buy-in and you take waste the getting up and the walking and the looking uh, for the patient out of their, their day. And it's, it's better for the... The caregiver, it's better for the, the patients. You know, right. It really is you improve quality and flow and take the waste out. Life gets better for everyone. And they just have to, people have to see that, that it's okay to change the way that I do my job. A lot of times we get everybody wants to change the way somebody else does their job to try to improve things. And and what, what I really think the, the skill that I started to develop there and, and continue to try to get better at is how do you get a group to come up with a new our way to do things towards a predefined goal? It, 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 you know, the single ideas are great from a single individual, but when you get three, four, and five people that have added to the idea, you get five people that have now bought into it and are going to make mm -hmm. it work. And what you, what you have to start to learn is, Okay, at what point do you say, okay, we've got enough, we're going to move on, we're going to try it? Because the conversation can go on and on yeah. and on. Yeah. On, well, let's do this, we could do this, we could do this, and how about this? And there, there's a point at which you want to, is a, there's a right size change in the process that you want to, um, that you want to get the team to try. And and that's what you know, becoming, I think, a, a lean leader is all about all about. I, I still know emergency medicine very well. I worked in the emergency department seeing patients today. Um, the but 99% of what we do at UMass Memorial Healthcare, I, I am not in any way an expert in. But I do feel, you know, 15, 16 years in, I'm an expert in facilitating a conversation about how to get better towards a predefined goal. And mm. Uh, and and that's the the honest thing I do. Yeah. So I, mean, I you know there there's some steps in between, and maybe you can talk through a little bit more of your own career progression in your different moves um, up into the point of becoming CEO at UMass Memorial Healthcare. I mean, what were some of the other leadership roles you were in in different places? What were some of the things that you learned as you continued practicing lean? this way, practicing leadership this way? Well, I, I think a, a 
two big ones um, for me were process stabilization, standardization, and thinking of it from a research perspective, you have to have a stable control set before you can do an experiment. Um, and then making it visual. And that's something that came you know, um, much, much later. Uh, Steven Spear once said to me that what Toyota does is they make information uh, available and visual for people to see such that they can see the waste um, easily from the information flows. And it took me a long time to understand what he was what he was talking about, but it, it is amazing that you know what a difference um, uh, that can make in terms of if any problem that we've been able to make visual, we've been able to um, make progress on solving. And uh, right now we're 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 struggling a little bit with uh, in the emergency department here with trying to get. Um, consults done quickly. Uh, so if you consult a surgeon to see a patient, how long does that take? You can't move the patient forward until the consult is done. And as I work with the team, and I'm close to this one because uh, uh, it's kind of my home department, I, I keep on asking the question, how are you going to make this visual? Because if you, if you can't make that problem visual, then uh, it's going to remain hidden. And you're not going to know when it, it gets worse or if it's getting better or if your experiment is working. Um, and it, and it, it, was, it became the thing that allowed me to progress from running a department to being CEO of a hospital to being, you know, I came, when I came back to UMass, I was president of our medical group. And then to be CEO of the healthcare system. As you move further and further away, in your position from where the real value is created, you have to find ways to, to, to make sure that people can see where the problems are and, and align those, um, uh, and those sources of information. So I, <clears throat> stabilization and continuous improvement uh, were probably, and, and visual, uh, make it visual, the problem that you're trying to solve have been two of the two of the key key um, uh, learning uh, for me mm -hmm. that allowed me to progress into the the newer newer roles. My office that I'm in right now is not at a hospital as far away. It's a car drive to um, anywhere where value is created. How do the people that work here, the senior leaders of the organization, understand the current state of the core processes and whether they're going well or whether they're going poorly and uh, because it would be easy to sit in the office and 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 just assume that everything was okay when i can tell you from working to hmm. being in the gamba today it wasn't okay it was a backup of patients there was people the customers needs weren't you know fully being met because of some challenges we face to do the leaders in the organization know that that problem was going on. Uh, you know, um, the people that are, are responsible to try to help fix that problem right. on behalf of the, uh, the caregivers that are trying to take care of patients. Right. So um, maybe just a, a couple of quick follow-up questions. So when you talk about making problems visible, uh, in, in my experience, there are times where people um, 
have trouble seeing waste because the waste has just, it's become the work. It's become normal. It doesn't jump out as, as being wasteful. And, and so, you know, I think there are some lean frameworks that can help people discover waste. But then I think there are other problems where in some organizations, people don't want those problems to, to be visible because they're afraid that they'll be blamed for what might be a very systemic problem. So on, to that point, I'm, I'm curious what you've done as a leader to, to help create an environment where it's safe for people um, to identify problems and risks and opportunities for improvement. And, and, that, and that in itself is a, is a journey. And we talk about celebrating the red and um, our, every one of our key metrics, you know, we pick 10 most important metrics we call our true North metrics is on posted on every wall in every room in the executive suite updated as soon as new information is available. And this is where the board of trustees uh, meets and, uh, and all of our key uh, leaders and from across the healthcare system, which is spread out over a hundred miles or so um, come together and see, and, and you can't uh, at least those 10 metrics, and these are things like observe versus expected mortality, really important things and safety measures. Uh, if they start heading in the right direction, everybody knows immediately. And I, I think one of my first experiences was with my own board of trustees in the early days of being CEO, where they said, you know, I'm seeing a lot of red on the wall and I'm concerned about that. And, um, I, what I what I said then, and, and I would say that to all of our people now, is I can change the metrics, I can change the goals, and you can see a lot of green instead, and you can you know be be comfortable because you're seeing green, but the, what the problems will still exist. Right? Mm -hmm. That if yeah. that if if you if we beat people up because a metric turns red because something's not going in the direction or, uh, that you needed it to go, wanted it to go, um, then people will change the metrics, people will change the goals, people change the colors, but you'll still have the problem. And the, the celebration of the red is, I'm glad we know that there's a problem now, because once we know there's a problem, we can deal with it. And we do. Uh, we had some of the worst um, you know, for observe versus expected mortality in, in 2013 was horrible uh, at, at some of our hospitals. And people say, how did you, how did it ever get that bad? And I, I said, well, because you, it wasn't anywhere anybody could see it. And then when they did try to talk about it, we beat people up for it. Mm, right. We buried it. The, the people who buried data. So what, we, what we've tried to do is create a safe environment by standardization of the process for reporting the metrics. So that very, very critical uh, metric when you're running uh, hospitals observe versus expected mortality, you want to be less than one and really to be a top decile want to be 0.7. Um, what, uh, there's a standard way you report out the metric. Here's the current results. And, and each metric has an owner. Um, here's where we expect it to be, want it to be, our, our plan was to be. Um, and if there's a gap, then here's the analysis, the root cause analysis we've done to determine why that gap exi exists. 
and here's the specific actions that we're going to take to get back on track. And for us at our core team meeting, you know, we, nobody likes to see observed versus expected mortality go red or, or, or get worse than it was the previous mm -hmm. year. That's mm -hmm. what it means to us. Um, the person that owns that isn't in trouble for the metric going red. They, what, where they can get themselves into trouble and the whole team holds them accountable is, have you really done a thorough analysis as to why there's a gap from where we were supposed to be to where we are? Right. What specific countermeasures are you going to take? Now, sometimes people say, I don't know, and I need to do more work to understand why the problem exists, and we'll give them that time. Um, but the, Or sometimes people understand or think they understand. They haven't done the work on the root cause analysis, and the team is constantly trying to coach them, provide them feedback. But in the end, once we've bought into this is why the gap exists, this is the specific actions that we're going to take, and we say, go ahead and execute the plan um, and keep us updated on, on that. The, the team does not hold that person accountable for the metric. They hold them accountable for the analysis and executing the plan. Mm. And if they come back at the end of this and the metric is even worse than before, I said, well, well, what do you want to do with the if the metric doesn't get better or if um, it's worse? And the answer is always do another experiment. And if the team bought into your analysis and your and your countermeasures you're going to put into place and then metric got worse, well, it got worse for all of us because we all bought into the plan. And so mm -hmm. what we try to do is to say, if when we and we say it, and it's hard to say, celebrate the red, because now that we know there's a problem, we have an opportunity to get better. Um, but let's make sure we've empowered somebody to to do, to understand the the problem, why the gap in, term, in performance exists, and what specific actions are going to be taken. And everybody understands that once we've approved the plan, that that senior leadership team, you, you got to execute it. You know, and yeah. it really comes down to the who, what, when. Um, after that. But what I hear you describing is the senior leadership team being a team and working together and sort of like the New England Patriots have, you know, team accountability for a win and a loss. Um, if there's a problem with the metric, one leader, one player isn't being thrown under the bus, right? Yeah, as, as long as that person um, is is truly working to understand the problem and and is executing what we've agreed on um they they don't own the performance now you do get into the situation and there's some people are better at executing than others and we just that you, you see there um or there are some people that are jumping to the countermeasures i want to do this and and often they'll it, uh i often I, i've said to a person once your root cause doesn't match up with your countermeasures and they said okay i'll go back and change my root cause and you know <laughs> but it, but that's the coaching of it right because right you know i i still have so much to learn and and the people that, that i work with have so much to learn and we, we've we've got to be on this journey together to to understand that so a lot of it is just coaching about how how do you get better at execution I, there's some people here that are just naturally always get whatever they say they're going to do, they get it done. And there's some people that need a, a more standardized process and a structure around that. Um, 
But I think that what you really want to move away from is you own a performance metric versus you own development and execution of a plan to improve that. And, and that's what you would, you want to hold someone accountable to, not to, um, not to the, the measure. Uh, you create very bad behaviors if, if you hold somebody to getting a result. I think it's yeah. a, appropriate to hold people to, to do what they promise the rest of the team that they're going to do. And I think that's the way a great football team or a great baseball team, basketball team, you know, that's what they're doing. They're expecting that you're going to make that block. Um, you're going to know what you were supposed to do in any particular play that's called. And that's, that's what we expect from our senior leaders. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was one other, that's great. And then one, one other follow-up question I wanted to ask going back to you know, you're, you're working today, earlier today, as an emergency physician. I mean, there, there, there's such a unique opportunity in healthcare, it seems, where uh, a health system CEO is also, at times, a frontline employee. You know, I, I don't imagine there's an airline where the CEO is formerly a pilot, and they still go out and do a few flights every month to see what the, you know, to, to see what customers are and, and employees and, and people are dealing with at the front lines, you know, Accio Toyota and, you know, Mary Barra, I'm, I'm sure aren't going out and working an hour on the assembly line each week. Um, if you can forgive the, the analogy, the, the parallel, but I'm, I'm curious, like how, how important is it to your success as a lean leader, as, as a CEO, to have that time working in the Gemba compared to organizations where, let's say, a leader has stopped practicing medicine, and they're. Yeah, I don't think it's it's critical to me as an individual, and that I just love being a physician. I've worked so hard mm-hmm. all my life to be a physician. Um, the the actual act of taking care of a patient, um, I just really enjoy, and I and I think you know there there are. I only work in one out of our six emergency departments um, uh, now. So I, I think that I get, I could make the mistake of thinking that when I come down there, um, it, it, it works the same as it does every day for people, mm-hmm. it, you know, it, it, consult times take, um, it takes a long time sometimes to get a consult unless I'm on. Right. And so it's kind of the, you, you think, what are, what are these people complaining about? The consultants come right mm. down. Well, they, they know you're working today, so they, they yeah. come down. So I, I don't think it's that important. I think what is important is that that time spent in the Gemba. And, and you know, I, labor and delivery is one of our most stressed out areas right now. Um, and so I going to them and huddling with that team and listening to them and the, about the problems that they face um, rather than hearing about it after it's passed through three layers of management, I, I just think is one of the most valuable things we do as leaders. And mm. so I, I don't think that it's critical that I practice medicine. I think there's lots of great um, lean leaders that are physicians that no longer practice. I wouldn't want, um, you know, a vascular surgeon or a heart surgeon that only practiced a couple times a month operating mm-hmm. on me if that went on for a lot of years. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, but I do think that time spent on the shop floor 
especially those areas that are stressed um, and, and where things aren't going well, is is absolutely critical. And some people don't, I have to admit, some people don't like it when I show up at an area that's having a problem because they they felt like, they feel like, well, you know, you're trumping our authority, you're not following the chain of command. And so you have to, but I'm just saying, I'm just there to listen. I'm just there yeah. to listen and learn about the problems that they face. I'm not throwing solutions out. If I go down and try to say, listen to people, you know, in labor and delivery is the example and say, okay, we're going to do this. We'll do this. We'll do this. Cause you told me and totally ignored the three, four layers of management um, between me or them, then that's problematic. But if I listen and learn and I hear their ideas and then I go talk to the, the managers in that area and say, this is what I've learned. What do you think of this? What do you think of that? And I think there's, it can be seen as a positive thing. I, it, it is, and I don't know if this is um, true everywhere, but it's been true everywhere that, that, that in the places that I've worked, and even here in, in what we call a, you know, a, a place that is really trying to adopt TPS as best we can. Um, most frontline managers and vice presidents that they report to don't like it when the CEO comes down and um, is on the shop floor with the people doing the work. Mm -hmm. I just think that's sad. Why wouldn't you be excited that the CEO wants to come down and see your area and potentially help you solve a problem? And I think here we get better and better at it because all of our executives have an area that is not under their control that they, they round on so they can learn. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's so easy in a place like ours with 14,000 people and almost 600 supervisors and managers to think you know how the place runs and be totally wrong until you're a patient or somebody you care about as a patient. Yeah. And I, I, I just, the, that time on the shop floor is just critical and just wow. asking questions and listening. Don't yeah. tell, you know, uh, just learning. I'm here to learn. I don't fully understand what the problems are that you're having. What can you tell me? And then just ask questions. Just lead by asking questions. And the people doing the work love it. They love the fact yeah. that you took the time to come down and listen. And we, we've actually surveyed and asked, what's the best part of executive rounding? And the the, the caregivers tell us it, it's senior executives listening to them and they get to tell you about the problems they face on a daily basis and trying to meet the the needs of the customer. Right. But, you know, coming out to the Gemba, I mean, it, it, it takes time to build up some trust, right? Cause I mean, I, I can think back to times working in the auto industry, the first plant manager I was one uh, that I worked under, you know, if he was out in the shop floor, that was because there was some serious problem and he was out there really just to kind of blame and to pressure people. And that was a bad sign. Um, You know, and when we had a new plant manager come in, you know, he spent months being out in the Gemba and, and building relationships and building trust so that, you know, his presence was not, seen as an indictment, <laughs> you know, he, it wasn't a threatening presence, but you know, I, I, one lesson I learned from seeing him operate and, 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 and talking with them is that, you know, people don't know your mindset. 
you know, if, if you were parachuted into an, a different organization, you're, you're the same Dr. Eric Dixon, they don't know you, they, they, they might feel threatened until they got comfortable with you, right? Yeah, and I, I think when you, when you go out to an area and, and you are humble and, and, and you know, are not afraid to say, look, I don't know how this works. Teach me about what you do here. And, but it's the same questions all, you know, kind of all, all the time for me, no matter where I go. It's what measure would I follow in this area to know whether things are going well or or not going well on any given day? Um, where do you see that there's the biggest waste of your time uh, in here? And it's because I, I feel very comfortable going out to any clinical area. And pediatrics was stressed for a while, so I spent just every day I could, I'd walk up on pediatrics and I'd say, how is it going? What problems are you having today? What can we do to help? What to, and and just asking uh, questions. Well, for a lot of people, they're uncomfortable going up to a clinical area. Like my CFO or a chief human resource officer, uh, CIO, you know, how comfortable are they just popping on to pediatrics and asking, how's it going today? Uh, but I go over to our central scheduling office, our central billing office, and you know they're talking in denials management, and I and it's and I say I I really don't understand what you do here, and they're like can you teach me about what it is that you do? Um, and you do that to somebody who's detached from care, and then you ask start asking the questions. What are the things that waste your time? What are the things that you think we could do better as a healthcare system? Just um, uh, what are the things that frustrate you the most in the, in, in, in this job? Um, yeah. And and let them teach you. Uh, it's you know it's it's great for your knowledge, and <clears throat> so that you make better decisions as a leader in the organization. But it's great for the people. I mean, they yeah. they love teaching you about their job and senior leaders listening. Uh, and so it, I I just feel like it helps you make bigger decision, better decisions later. Yeah. So um, a couple other things I want to touch on, you know, in the time that we have left, um, you know, some of, you know, I want to ask about some of the things that you've uh, been leading at UMass Memorial Healthcare. And, you know, I will point listeners, um, as I mentioned in the introduction, back to episode 231, where, you know, we shared some audio um, of, of Eric talking at the 2015 Lean Healthcare Transformation Summit about, you know, coming in to UMass uh, in 2013 and the first couple of years, uh, you know, that turnaround story. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily want to ask you to, you know, tell the whole story again because we can point people at that other episode. But I was wondering if, if you could tell kind of the high-level story arc in the context of, um, you know, coming in and, you know, what those first couple of years were and then how have things progressed since 2015? So um, I became CEO in 2013. We um, we we were losing about eight million dollars a month on a on a two and a half billion dollar base. Uh, we lost 55 million that year. Um, our major you know nursing union uh, went out on strike a month after I got the job. Um, 
the uh, the quality scores are very low. The patient satisfaction scores are very low. The engagement scores are very low. And you know, the the first thing that I did, and this comes right from the book of Lean. This was not um, something that was you know I, I I created was to stabilize the process and the processes we needed to stabilize were how we managed as an organization. Um, how do we set goals? How do we set strategy? How do we deal with um, results, uh, you know, what our standardized problem solving, uh, uh, process. And, uh, and that was version one of what we call our framework for performance excellence. Mm -hmm. And it's just to try to stabilize our management processes because most places don't have a standardized approach to how they manage. Um, certainly don't have it written down. And, uh, we're on version 10 of that, standardized process now and you know maybe when we get to version 20 we'll have something that's uh good but i think it's all we have today is something that's much better than version one and much better than flying by the seat of your pants is what what we were doing in 2013 and with each improved pdca cycle uh, for our management processes we've gotten a little bit better and you know I, um almost all of our numbers, there are a few that have been a bit more challenging than others, um, have uh, have headed in the, in the right direction for the past five years. And we're, we're not knocking it out of the park, but when you start from the bottom one percentile and observe versus expected mortality, being in the top quartile is a, is a success. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that the, the key has been, we have written down how we run the place a standardized approach to managing UMass Memorial Healthcare that's 10 PDCA cycles through. And the senior leadership team gets together in every six months and we review that process and we say, what change, what new, what experiment do we want to do next? Mm-hmm. And I think if I handed anyone the version 10 and said, oh, this is the way you should run your place, It'd be a complete mistake, and you have to have gone through the ten versions and the learning cycles to be okay with where you're at. And what I what I coach people to now, and other CEOs that are you know coming in, and and I just standardize your process for how you're going to run the place and continuously improve it. Get your team to agree. This is how we're going to set strategy. This is how we're going to measure performance. This is how we're going to. Um, <clears throat> This is how we're going to deal with uh, problems, uh, standardized problem-solving methodology. And then every six months, get together with your team and huddle with your team and say, okay, what's working, what's not working, and what are we going to change? And a big part of that standard process is how we information flows and how we make sure we know when something is going off track because that's what we didn't have before. And then how do we engage every one of our people every day in terms of trying to improve that performance. So in, the, in our CEO, uh, in our strategy suite here, right on the wall, emergency department boarding hours for all of our, um, this is weights in the emergency department, uh, for all of our emergency departments. Uh, but I was in one of the seven today and that same number for that one out of the seven, you could see all the way down in that individual emergency department. So there was that alignment of what's important at the system level to what's important at that business unit level. Yeah. And I, I just, I, 
I can't overemphasize enough for people that are are just getting into this or just put into a leadership role. It's it comes down to you know getting together with your team and saying, okay, like how do we want to run this place and let's write it down. If you want to reduce ventilator-acquired pneumonia, there's a bundle or um, surgical um, patient safety. There's a surgical checklist, and you know, or central line placement. There's a standardized approach that we can continuously improve. And I, if you looked at those things, you'd be amazed what's on there. Wash your hands before you put a, a, a big IV in someone's neck. Introduce yourself before you start the case in, uh, in the OR. Talk about what might go wrong and what actions you would take so that you can be prepared for them before you start the case. This, this isn't these novel, groundbreaking things, but the fact that you write them down and you do it every time is, is, and you follow a standardized process, that's what's novel. That's what's right. different about, uh, I think, our organization and uh, many others that people come uh, and, and work for. There's nothing special in version 10 of our management process, but the fact that we've been through 10 learning cycles together, the yeah. fact that we write down and we can refer back to, okay, this is the way we do this. The fact that it can bring a new president of the medical center just started a few months ago, hand him that. And, and actually before he took the job, I said, read this and, um, you know, if you can't follow this management, uh, our, our management structure, please don't come here because mm. things won't go well. And we're, yeah. we're going to ask you for your ideas about how we can change our standard management process. But when you get here on day one, you're going to follow the standard management process because everybody has to, to follow the standard work to make it, uh, to make it successful. Right. I, I think that's the, the big lessons. And, you know, this, this is kind of 15 years in, uh, 20 years in, they'll probably be different and hopefully 30 yeah. years in um, there'll be different things that have become important to you uh, and, and to me overall on this kind of journey on this le learning journey. But I, I, I would, I'd say that standardization of your management processes um, is absolutely key. Yeah. And then getting your teams buy-in to what, how you're going to run the place is, has been one yeah. of those key takeaways from all of this. Well, there's, there's, there's common themes there. And, and maybe the last thing we can touch on, I mean, you know, you talk about leaders, including yourself, running experiments, having standardized methods, but continuously improving them. And, and I'm sure that sets a great example for engaging all of the employees. And, and one thing I love about what you've been doing there is, you know, what, what you call everyday innovators. So I was wondering if you could talk about how, how important that has been to the overall lean approach um, in the organization? I, I think the, so for, for us, you know, it's engaging every one of our people every day and trying to perfect the customer experience and the caregiver experience, best place to give care, best place to get care. And that's every new employee that walks in the door. Um, that's the first message that they get. I deliver it if I'm available on most, uh, most weeks I am is that you know that that's the special part about working here is that we want you to do that job that you were trained for but we also want you to find new and better ways to do it and if you come and work here 
um, your your idea will be important and we will um, help to implement it. Now, does that mean everybody's ideas get implemented 100% of the times? Unfortunately not. Right. I think the, the, the biggest metric that I could use or, or analogy that I could use about how far we've come is on my first retreat with the managers as CEO, I said, okay, we lost $55 million. That means we need 5,500 $10,000 ideas for how to improve, either cost reduction, productivity improvements. Um, and, you know, there's 5,500 ideas out there in terms of the people doing the work about how we can, how we, how we can get back on track. And I said, you know, right now today, what percentage of those are going to get implemented? And the consensus in the room of 300 people was 5 to 10%. Right. The, the, the ideas about how we can get back on track, the people have great ideas here. What percentage of them are going to get implemented? Um, and it was five to 10% was the answer. And I said, well, that's fundamentally what's why we're in the, having the problem that we're, we're having, right? We haven't engaged every one of our people in trying to, to improve the organization. And I did a recent survey where we asked the people doing the work, um, if you have an idea about how to improve, what, what's the likelihood? that it will be implemented. And I wanted it to be 100%. <laughs> our, our people told us that it's about 75% of the time if I have an idea to improve, it gets implemented. And that's you know, as, as much as I wanted it to be 100%, oh. where that's, that's so much better than where we were. Absolutely. And, and, I, and I would bet you that if, you know, there's few organizations out there that if you ask the the frontline workforce. Um, if you have a great idea about how to make things better here, what's the likelihood that it's going to get implemented? I think there's few organizations where it would be 75%. I've never worked yeah, at one up but, until here where it was 75%. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the one benchmark that I've heard from Toyota and others is about a 90% implementation rate. And some of that comes from leaders coaching employees, it's not necessarily the initial idea that's implemented, but 90% of the time something gets implemented. I, I don't know if that's how people are estimating that 75%. Um, yeah, I, I, and it's the, it's the years and years of, of ideas implemented. And we have a tracking system and we don't capture every idea. We don't want to capture every idea, but we, you know, it's, it's nice to measure things that are important to the organization and uh, we've implemented about 65,000 registered ideas in our idea wow. system out there in the last five years. And uh, you know, some of them are paying off, will pay off forever for us. And yeah. it, it's, it's just remarkable. I, I, I just, uh, you know, there's one thing that uh, I'll always rem remember is that a, nursing assistant on the floor without a huddle and the chief of transplant surgery said, you know, we've got to find a way to get the patients walking more sooner. And, uh, and that's so important for their recovery. And she had been learning about making things visual and English was not her primary language. So it was a little bit threatening with, you know, th that doc there, cause he's such an important person in the organization. And she yeah. said, well, what if we marked off the number of feet on the floor, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, and then we had the patient record 
how many feet they had walked that day. And we told them that the higher that number goes, the better they get. And it was, you know, the, the chief of transplant loving the idea, um, helping get it implemented. And, and, you know, that medical assistant, I see her now today, and, and every floor now has that because everybody thought that was um, a, a great idea to help. You know, every time she walks by those numbers on the floor, she swells with pride and because yeah. because people listen to me and that's for me it's always that, that ultimate piece of respect for people that i i think you have something to contribute to the organization your ideas matter your ideas count um even if it's if you're a nursing assistant here and um and you're solving a problem for the chief of transplant surgery and, you know, we, we have a long, long way to go as an organization. Our challenges are enormous. And you know, as a safety net provider um, with a very, very high share of Medicaid, we get less than most places. Um, but this is, this is for me, I often say this is the, the thing that uh, it gives us hope is that we know we can solve problems now faster than um, than we could in the past. More problems yeah. being solved faster and faster every day. And what pr- problems come up now, and in the past, we'd say, you'd say you do nothing but compli- complain and whine about it. And now people have confidence that, no, we'll find a way to solve that. And I, I saw it the other day, we took a $40 million hit in Medicaid payments, and the team said, we'll find a way, we'll find a way to fix mm. this find a way to get through because we always do and it's that confidence that comes with we've solved a lot of problems here and and we become better problem solvers um and that and that's just what takes time and i think that's uh you can't replicate that in iowa there's a saying it takes um 21 days for a chicken to hatch an egg 21 chickens can't hatch the egg (laughs) in one day right it just Mm -hmm. and it's 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 true that you, there's just there's a process you have to go through in terms of the organization developing and learning together and becoming a better problem solver uh, that nobody can replicate for you. Nobody can yeah. give people can help you, and but but they can't. You have to go through the journey to be able to get there. And I'm glad we started in 2013. Um, because if we, you know, if we hadn't started back then, I, I think we'd be in a world of hurt right now as an organization, given all that's occurring yeah. in health. And so we're going to keep on working it, and <laughs> right. it is what gives us hope. And and what no matter what's thrown at us, we, we we believe we'll make it through and we'll yeah. be all right. Well, that's that's so great to hear um, that that's you know the, the 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 growing attitude and you know is. You know, it's always challenging times at healthcare, and there's there's what who knows what future challenges ahead. But to develop that that sort of can-do spirit, um, you know, what some would call it, you know, the spirit of kaizen, the spirit of continuous improvement. That's really um, really special to hear about. So um, I want to thank you so much, Eric. Um, you know, again, um, our, our guest today has been Dr. Eric Dixon. He's the president and CEO of UMass Memorial Healthcare. He's an emergency medicine physician. He's a professor of emergency medicine at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Um, Eric, thank you so much for um, taking time out of 
your, uh, I'm sure it was an incredibly busy day, and, and, and thank you for sharing your thoughts and reflections here with us. Well, it's my pleasure, Mark, and thank you for all you do to, to help us get better faster, and we've all learned a great deal from your podcasts and your books and uh, other things that you've done, so really appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.